Shachtan, an Indo Askelige. Time in Mon Iruk the Yen of Chacht Erachor, Agasuligum, a Machan Shaw, Gurfeder Echor, Inuik Kart, Len of Winterfein. Skilti, Fis, Turmi. Tashe Dochretche, Nach Vetok, Ara, Igornamion, and Kestian Echo. Vien Talam again Omgrev, Orkar Nrachtum. Find us on all the usual podcast platforms. Remember, you can stay up to date on the latest news with the Irish Independent WhatsApp channel. Hello and you're welcome to The Big Tech Show with me, Adrian Weckler, the tech editor of the Irish and Sunday Independent. And this week we're going to talk about banks and finance and all of that really sexy stuff. And I'm joined here by Tim Hines, who's the CIO of AIB, former head of IT, EMEA of Microsoft. Is that right, Tim? That's right, yeah. Okay. Now, there's a couple of reasons you're here. One of them is actually to talk about Techies for Temple Street because AIB is second year of sponsoring uh, this event, which is on next week. And that's a fantastic cause. It raises money for Temple Street, gets a lot of tech companies together. It's a big day out. Uh, it's really good. So I'm going to come on to that. And first, I'm going to ask you some some tough stuff, sure. some, some, some awkward and tough stuff. Um, so you're the incoming CIO of AIB. And you were the former head of IT for EMEA for Microsoft. As such, wouldn't you have thought coming into AIB that traditional banks, AIB Bank of Ireland, are really getting left behind by the likes of the Revoluts? So actually, I'd be four years now in September. So when yeah. I came in, uh, I conscious. So I, I almost retired essentially. I yeah. left Microsoft. I had a good yeah. run. Uh, and my wife said, after a few months, please go back to work. <laughs> yeah. So what I said to myself is I wanted to go somewhere where I thought uh, there was some scale, new sector for learning, and where I thought the leadership team were serious about doing something. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I looked at a couple of different options, and the reason I joined the bank was I believed they were serious about actually making a change and, and bringing tech to the fore. Uh, and I think we've done a lot in the three-odd years that I've been in the bank. Uh, so we can talk about the pros and cons of a fintech, but coming from a Microsoft background, mm. My DNA is that competition is a good thing and disruption. Oh, no, absolutely. Thing. But I look at, like, we have a couple of, uh, believe it or not, a couple of young people in the office. <laughs> and you talk to them about what they're using for their payment mechanism. It, you know, it's Revolut, it's Apple mm. Pay, it's a lot of these, uh, you know, new methods. But you talk to them about, you know, Bank of Ireland, IB, Ulster Bank. They really, even if they're using them, they're, it, there's a... I'll be honest, there is a negative brand association that they have with them. It's seen as something that their parents or their grandparents uh, use. There are a couple of issues with that. Things like, you know, fees and not having two and a half grand in your bank account so that, you you, you, you know, you will uh, have to pay fees. But ultimately, is there not a risk of some of these fintech operations, the Revoluts, that once they start actually, um, you know, uh, uh, getting into loans business, getting into more personal relationship banking, that because there's a generational brand building thing going on, that, that the likes of AIB will be left behind. Uh, look, it's a, it's a danger when you get any kind of disruption, uh, as we're seeing at the moment in tech, and other sectors have seen this disruption. 
I, look, it's a couple of things I'd say. And again, as coming from a Microsoft background, mm. this is less concerning to me because there's opportunity in it as well as challenge, right? Mm. Um, so the first thing I'll say is that um, Revolut, I think it's about 200,000 customers for Revolut from what I know in Ireland at the moment. Yeah, that sounds right. Uh, and you know, our, our data, we would see people who are current account holders who would transfer money into Revolut. Mm. Uh, and we wouldn't look at any of this from an individual customer perspective, but we look at the metadata. And one of the things we see is that people transfer the money in and then they kind of go dormant. Mm. Now, there are some who are heavy users, uh, but I can't tell you after 200,000 how many are going to sustain as users. Mm. And at the same time, uh, with the work we've done from a digital perspective, our mobile app, I would argue, is significantly stepped up from the competition. And I can, there's a digital IQ thing from Gartner I can talk about. But um, we've got 950,000 people using the mobile app very, very frequently, like multiple times a week. Mm. Uh, and we have 1.6 million people using our digital channels multiple times a week. Um, so we're well embedded into how people use financial services and how they want to enact. So like 95% of our interaction with customers now is digital. Mm. And 70% of personal You kind loans. of expect that, though, anyway, regardless of whether AIB was doing a good job of redeveloping its own app or, or going into competition with something like You would expect that you know, that, that people have just switched over to largely paperless banking, arguably maybe branchless banking. Certainly most people under a certain age, sorry to go back to the age thing again, but so you'd kind of expect that. Wouldn't you? Uh, I mean, as a broad statement, I get it, but it, it's an anecdotal thing. The data actually shows that if you look at branches, so we still got over 200 branches, right? And mm. there's a kind of, for a bank like AIB versus a fintech, there's this kind of a social license as well there and keeping the branches open. It's part of the fabric. That's a fair point. You know, so that is something that the organization is very committed to. Mm. Um, so that they're going to be part of it. And what we've done there is we've digitized the branches. So even there, when customers come in, it's a digital experience. Um, but I think with the mobile app, like you only engage with a mobile app frequently if it's adding value to you. Mm. You know, I mean, one of the ones I'd, I'd use frequently would be the taxi app because it suits me. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I'd use the, the like, independent.ie, right? I'll, I'll use those apps because oh, they're a on, daily thing. Yeah. I'll try to look up to you now. You'll get those kind of things. They're regular. They're a daily yeah. use thing to me. Why would banking be a daily use thing to unless it's very relevant? So mm. to have achieved 950,000, and I'll pop a cork when we finally hit the million, right? Mm. But when we get, like, to have those people using it on a regular basis means it's part of the fabric of how they spend their day. If If... So many people are doing that then. I take your point. It's actually a really good point about branches being part of the social fabric of a country. On Post would say the same thing. There are a couple of other organizations that, mark, I mean, air to a certain extent might argue something similar in terms of uh, its legacy in Ireland, etc. That aside, what is the logic to having a bank, a physical bank branch now? So again, it's it's about what the customer wants, right? As I said, the, like the language we would tend to use is it's part of a social license, as mm. it were, right? It's a contract with the country. But so there is an age thing. There are some people, but you like you think small medium enterprises. There's still a lot of cash in use in the mm. country. So where do they go with their cash? Uh, we we extend our reach further. Actually, with, we have a partnership with Unpost to extend our reach even further. Um, so there's a lot of business happening around the country that is still in cash. So do those to go. is it the case that generally a branch will actually wipe its own face or pay oh, yeah. its own way. Yes. Absolutely. Generally. It's, it's not that some of them or a lot of them are being maintained as a kind of a branding thing or as a kind of a contract with the community or anything like that. Some are more profitable than others. Yeah. Right? But if you look back to, say, so go back 10 years, uh, there was a lot more cost in branches, right? And as a result of everything that happened, you know, before I came into banking, there was a, you know, there was a need to get at that, right? But actually digitizing it, 
uh, has been a major step. So if you walk into a branch now, you'll get a lot of the people will be out on the floor talking to customers. So we've got kiosks where they can do most of their business. There's a, there's a teller if they want to walk up to a teller. But what we've done is brought the, the uh, employees out from behind. So our guys are out from behind the, the desk now out talking to the customers. They have an iPad in their hand. They can open accounts. They can close accounts. Mm-hmm. They can do loans. They can. So it's a, it's a much more interactive experience. So you create a much better experience for the customer and you take cost out. And now the, the branches make sense in their own mm-hmm. right anyway. If a lot of payments are going cashless now, I wrote a column in the Sunday Independent last week. I read it. Um, kind of my own experience because I won a bet uh, about six weeks ago. It was a tragic bet. I bet against my team, Liverpool, to win the Premier League because I didn't want the other team to. I wanted Liverpool to win. So this is my way of placing an insurance bet so that even if the worst happens and Liverpool don't win the league, I will be rewarded with the wages of sin. And I was rewarded with the wages of sin because they missed out by a point. Nevertheless, I'm getting to the point of my, my, my story. And the point is that... I won roughly 300 euro. So I got them at three to one uh, when Man City were seven points ahead back in January and everybody said Liverpool couldn't lose. I knew they could. (laughs) I didn't want them to. But anyway, at 300 euro. And I still have most of that 300 euro Mm -hmm. either in my wallet or I don't know, I won't say where, but in undisclosed location because I don't really spend cash anymore. Yeah, me neither. Okay. So, but if that's the case... That's just me, and that's anecdotal. I think there's probably a wide movement along those lines. You look at figures aren't that easy to come by, but generally speaking, there is a cashless move. That being the case, is it not a matter of time until bank branches are part of that, are succumbed to that, and there isn't a need for a physical location for physical cash. It, it could well happen. I mean, cash is slow to come out of our economy. Actually, mm. if you look at the Scandi countries, they're usually used as the example for mm. the cashless, right? But when I, I remember going into, you know, Stockholm 10 years ago and you pick up a piece of gum and no one blinked if you used your card to pay for it. Yeah. And then you move to the, you know, the touch and mm. like all of that kind of stuff. It just makes it more convenient. So they're used as the example, but you still have branches. Mm. So if customers want branches, there'll be branches. If they wash their face from a business perspective or as part of a social contract. So and you, we, you think... They are at the moment. You said they are at the yeah. moment, and you think they will for the foreseeable future. I, for some time to come, yeah. I mean, we've no we've no plan at the moment to take mm. branches out of the mix. Mm. And if you look at it from a, if you think about banking as like any business, you've got the front end piece where you're actually talking to the customer. Now you have a digital channel, of course, as part of that. Mm. You'll have a fulfillment component. So there's there's a kind of a line there all the way through. Um, so it could be that some of the things we would have traditionally done in you know back office type activities. On behalf of customers, maybe those move out the branches so you shorten the line between the customer and the outcome. You know, so there's different mm-hmm. ways to think about it. But even without cash, and, and I do think we're a while in Ireland before we get a, get past cash. There why, are certain, why do you think we, we well, that is? I think it's a, it's a tradition thing in Ireland at the moment, right? People just I mean, like is it? Because a guy was recently out on an island, um, I won't say which island, off the West Coast. Because I was out there for telecoms reading, so anybody who looks it up will find out which island. But anyway, they only accepted cash on the island, even though they had broadband and even though they had terms. They only accepted cash. And I, I was puzzled at first, and I was asking around, why is it that they mm. only accept cash here? Mm. And people sort of looked at me and put the finger on the nose and <laughs> winked and, you know, <laughs> and, and then I got it. Um, and that has always been a kind of a sly kind of undertone to why, you know, when you ask, put the question out there, why are we so addicted to cash? Someone, some wag will always say, ah, now, why do you think? Um, 
And and the insinuation is there that it's yeah. an efficient way of maybe avoiding all rules and regulations that apply to money transfers. But um, I, I, other than that, why is it that cash is... So listen, I'm with you. So we've enabled Apple Pay and Google Pay and yeah. all those things. And people use them. I use them, right? I, I, I couldn't tell you how much money I have in my wallet. In fact, yeah. normally I don't even have a wallet with me, mm. right? Uh, so if you want to embrace it, it's there. Mm. It's a habit thing, I think, for a lot of people. Uh, I think it would be unfair for us to think that most mm. of the cash flows around the country is a way of avoiding paying tax. I don't think that's right. Mm. But there is just a habit thing. You know, somebody once said, or not once, somebody said to me recently, that uh, you know, it'll come a time when the only reason you'll have fifty quid will be so you can put it in somebody's confirmation card. Do you know that's not far off the truth? And that is not far off the truth. Um, and and actually, the tax infrastructure in Ireland still hasn't fully caught up to cashless as well. Mm. You, if you want to catch a tax, you will often mm. uh, need uh, cash. And look, I've got. I, I think cashless is cool. Like I've gone mm. that way. And and if you think of it from a society perspective, it makes it harder for the bad guys. It does. You know. So there's there's benefits. Now there are other considerations as well and even though I, I included a paragraph in this in my column I did one or two people came back at me and said I didn't emphasize the point strongly enough so I'll say it I'll say it here the reason that many people um, think that it's it's unfair to move too quickly to cashless is because there are there's a certain amount of people who don't have the wherewithal to get involved in the cashless society. Mm. They don't necessarily even have bank accounts mm. um, and it's difficult for them to get those and it's a bit unfair to set everything up in a way that excludes them. That that point is well taken. One point that I think though is often abused as a point is this idea that the old people won't be able to get their hand around it. I, I've never found that a credible. No. Do you? No, I don't. I mean, it, it's... It's like anything when you generalize, it's just yeah. an unfairness to it, right? Yeah. Uh, I know younger people mm. who prefer to have cash mm. and I know older people mm. who are more than comfortable with the tech, right? Mm. Um, so it, it really, just for us, the, the approach we would take is we have an omni-channel approach, right? Mm. Um, so we're saying wherever you want, whichever way you want to come and engage with us, we'll be there to engage with you. So, you know, certain transactions like I want to do a mortgage, maybe I want to come look somebody in the eye mm. for that, right? Or Because something like that you do, what, twice, three times in your life, maybe. So you're not the expert. You want to come and sit with someone who's going to reassure you. you maybe you don't want to that, do that in a digital channel. Whereas you're borrowing a 1,000 or 2,000 to go on holiday, mm. you could do that in a digital channel. So we have this opti-channel approach. And we will do that for as long as customers want. I think, I think we are heading in a direction. It's a matter of how long will it take. And I think another two or three years of data will give us an idea of what that trend is actually going to look like. Mm. I mean, look, from a banking perspective, there's a cost to cash. It mm. costs us money to handle cash. Sure. You know, because you're moving it and you're counting it and you're, you're replacing it. And There's uh, always uh, a thing about counterfeit. Is that still a major problem, counterfeit? You get pockets of, of incidents. Right. But the technology around scanning the notes and stuff is so good now, and retailers are so aware. It does seem like a while since I walked into a shop, handed them a 20 or a 50, but a 20 and they would sort of pause and ostentatiously look it up to the light and then look at you and then mm. look at the note again. <laughs> but it can happen. What, it happened to me last year. Uh, I won't say where I was in the yeah. country. And I said, God, that's unusual. And he said, yeah, we've just had an incident where a few have floated around. So I think oh. occasionally you might get a little pocket of it, yeah. you know. Um, and because it's the euro, it could come mm. from anywhere, right? Yeah. Uh, but it's not a common feature now. I mean, and the tech in the notes and the tech mm. in, the, in the actual, you know. I remember you're, you're of a similar vintage to me, 40s, I'd say. I won't ask you to answer that question. Thanks um, very much. You've uh, been very nice. I, I remember um, years ago being on a school trip to Germany 
And the big scam at the time we all had was the 5p, the old 5p coin was the same size as the Deutschmark. So what you could do is <laughs> you you go to the vending machine in the hostel and everybody, we all like gorged ourselves on cans of Coke because we all had loads of 5ps. <laughs> we just lashed them in. Um, so that was our counterfeit scam. Let me ask you a little bit about um, security in general. It's always a nebulous topic with banks because... So banks have at least as many challenges with security as any other big company. We never hear that much about the security issues within a bank. And it's always somewhat understood that there's more going on behind closed doors than uh, than we hear about. Um, how bad does it get? So the whole cyber piece and just information security in general is an ongoing challenge because it moves very quickly, right? And it's it's industrialized on the back end. I mean, you can go on the dark web and buy thousands of authenticated mm. emails for 10 bucks, mm. you know, and then you use that to do a phishing scam. And the software behind your phishing scam is something you bought for three grand. You don't have to be technical. You can yeah. buy it and customize it, right? And then, you know, mm. configure it and off it goes. So it's a very low cost entry for the bad guys. And then the other challenge you have is how often does somebody get caught? Like if you show up with a balaclava and a shotgun, there's a fair chance that someone's going to catch you. Yeah. But you do something like that from some part of the world, first of all, it's hard to track you. Mm. And then it's even harder to convict you and to get you. So it's a low entry cost and a low potential uh, negative if you're caught. How regularly are you actually hit by a scam? So I want to be careful not to talk too much about specific technologies we have or any of that kind of stuff, because one of the defenses you have is make the guys have to figure it out. Mm -hmm. So I'll give you a couple of things. We've been at this for a while. Um, the biggest uh, asset you have in battling this is intelligence. And there's an interesting thing here from a social perspective or a country perspective. Like if you look at um, um, world measures of what the big risks are to the planet, you've got stuff like bad weather. and They're nearly all kind of climate type related. Yeah? And the only other one that makes it up into the top five or six is cyber. It has the potential to shut down critical services. Right? Yeah. And individual nation states will have an approach to that, but they don't have an approach to protect necessarily the critical infrastructure itself. So you mm. might say, I'm going to protect my state secrets, but do you have a national approach to protecting your hospitals and your electricity and your financial services? And the answer to that is no. So what happens from a banking perspective is we've come together. So we're part of a thing called the Cyber Defence Alliance across the UK and Ireland. Uh, there's a number of big banks involved and we all put money in. So we've got a central team of people sitting in the UK doing threat intelligence and then if, if in an event that we see something for example we will share it into that into the cyber defense alliance and then all the banks will rally together to figure out what the what's the way to get the best information from it and to defend and then you sometimes will see another bank a couple of weeks later will have exactly the same type of event but they are now equipped to protect themselves and you're saying that the banks in ireland and the uk have done this because we don't have an adequate overall plan yeah, well, nationally. we have done it because there is no kind of, I don't think any country actually has cracked this. Uh, right. So as a, as, a, as a sector, we've come together to share intelligence and our ability to respond and all of that sort of so stuff. That's and it's a, working. So that's at a very macro level. Yeah. You mentioned nation state threats mm. there. But what about at a smaller level? I mean, I've, this week, for example, um, for the second time in seven days, uh, and uh, a second U.S. city in Florida has had to pay out six-figure sum on a ransomware attack mm -hmm. because it wasn't prepared and somehow it got into their backups uh, as well. But uh, like at a, at a more... 
business to business level, how often do you actually have a serious situation that you have to face? So I, and I'm not being deliberately evasive for any other reason other than I don't want to tell. I tell you off air, right? Mm. We don't we don't like to say this because we want no one to know on the bad guy side of things, right? But there are events, okay, right? And so far, yeah, we have been able to manage those events as okay. have our partners in the CDA. What I will say to you is that if you look at the type of attack that you'll get. So one of the things we would be involved in sometimes is with customers mm. where they've been, you know, the victim of a phishing email and then somebody does a, a mock email in to try and get them to pay a bogus in, uh, invoice. Mm. And we have systems to protect their customers where we will say, that looks like a fraudulent thing or that mm. looks like that, you know, they haven't paid in there before. It looks a bit odd. And we will often reach out to the customer and see what we can do to help. Now, it's on the customer in the end, but we do what we can to add layers in because most small organizations don't think about this. Do you, do, do, does the banking system in general here still largely cover um, losses that customers make in that way? If, no, if, if the customer, if we go to a customer and say, we think this is fraudulent and the customer says, you know, and we've had examples mm. where a customer might say, don't tell me how to run my business. Mm. And we'll say, really, we're giving you advice. And mm. if the customer presses ahead, I mean, we've done everything we can. Yeah. If it's something that we could have made a real effort to protect, then we'll obviously look at you know, there's individual situations. Uh, but by and large, uh, we've got good stuff in terms of protecting mm. our customers within our own walls and using our intelligence to try and reach out beyond our walls. And you see DDoS attacks. You see these things coming in. Um, but there are mechanisms that we've put in place um, to protect ourselves. So actually, the weakest link is the human being. A lot of people say that all right. Although in the banking sector in the UK and Ireland, I believe it in terms of that geographical area, over the last, say, six to seven years, there have been ongoing problems. I know because I've reported on some of them. Um, a banking group, I won't say which one, one in particular has had particular, has attracted particular negative publicity for uh, more IT meltdowns than cyber attacks, but the exact cause of those meltdowns has never really been fully detailed. So there could be a cyber element uh, uh, to it. So, like, isn't there a reputation problem still or a hurdle to get over for banks when it comes to security, or is that being too harsh? I think you could. I think it's true in, in that you could say it about any enterprise. Because I think your first damage is is reputational. Mm. I mean, we know, for example, you know, a shipping company that we won't mention. Yeah. And if they hadn't had one server available mm. in Latin America, which had been off the off the air for maintenance, mm. they wouldn't have been able to recover their mm. environment. Mm. So any organization in any sector is vulnerable to this, and it is like dealing with terrorism. I mean, th they only have to get lucky once, mm. right? So you're very detailed about, like, we put a lot of money into this. I've got some really smart people working on this mm. all the time. We use excellent partners, and we partner with the other banks. So you do everything you can. And we, we use um, ethical hackers, and we use, you know, external third parties. So you because you're very conscious of what you are the custodian of. Mm. Right? But you get something like the British Airways event. Do you remember that mm. one? The challenge for us then is that is credit cards exposed. So now we have to get on that and make sure we're looking to do what we can to protect our customers if it's possible that their credit cards are exposed. Mm. So even when it's not inside our walls, we're looking out to see what the impact on customers can be. In terms of security of customers accessing the app or other uh, ways of getting at their information with AIB, is there any new thinking 
in terms of replacing pins or passwords. How is that evolving? Is that evolving? Yeah, I think a couple of things, actually. One of the things I find, you talk about cashless, one of the things I find frustrating is that, you know, when you tap with a card, you're limited to 30 euro. Yeah. But with a device, you're not. Right. Because it's two-factor authentication. Sure. Right? But so many retailers have set their own limit at 30 euro. 30 euro. And everyone I go into, I try it just to see who's yeah. set it and who hasn't. And it's still, I'd say about... I'd say one in five has it set, right? Um, so retailers who switch that off, I think we'll find that they're getting an mm. easier customer flow. Um, the other thing, though, is uh, strong customer authentication. So one of the things I'd say, you know, I'm, I say almost four years in banking, I've done a lot of work around regulation and looked at it. I think the regulators have done a very good job, right? Now, can be a pain <laughs> because yeah. they can be extremely demanding and the time scales can be short. But one of the things they've done a good job in is thinking about things like strong customer authentication for open banking and all of these kind of things. And strong customer authentication, you'll see that come later in the year. Um, and what it will mean is that we will authenticate the device. So it's another level of authentication. Um, and we, you know, depending on the future and how customers feel about sharing data, you can start to look at things like, you know, where are you? Are you in an odd place? So, you know, if you go and, uh, if you've had this experience, but if you were in the States and you oh, put listen, your card in and take money out of an ATM somewhere. I'm going to turn you your positive story into a negative one now, yeah, right? You get because, a text and yes. it says, did you use your card? I know that, but you get a text. You get a text. So, ah, I, I, so why, why do we send you a text? Yeah. So because it's what? Because it's my unique identify number, right? No, well, no, it's no, attached no. to my well, account. Well, why wouldn't we use the app? Because I because you might have your data turned off. Because I might have my data turned off. But see, here's the thing with that system, right? And this happens to me every time to go to the States. I should add that I am not a primary banker with AIB. I do have an AIB account, but the, the, the banking process I'm about to tell you about uh, is with one of your rival banks, but it is the same thing. I go to the States. I try to buy something. It could be a cup of coffee. It could be something. It's probably for something more expensive than a cup of coffee, but... Uh, the next time I try to use it, it's in a taxi or a mm -hmm. restaurant and the person says, your card's been declined. I said, that can't be the case. Yes, it has. Um, but because I am not going to pay 100 euro a day in roaming charges, I'm using a different SIM card that I've got locally in the States for fun, or I'm using Wi-Fi. So I don't have my phone, my mm -hmm. Irish SIM uh, uh, switched on. It's only when I either get back to Ireland or I have to turn the phone on and cost 20 euro just to bloody well connect that I see there's, there's a text there from my bank saying, oh, um, just, you know, just uh, in case we decided to disable your card because it, you know, it's in a foreign place. There's got to be a better way of doing so it than that. on our app, you could just go into any card and say you're traveling, what country you're traveling to, how long you're traveling for. Okay, that would be helpful. Card. That's that on our app. That's been on our app for ages. Okay. It's not on our rivals app, though. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, but I asked you about passwords because there is some, and PIN numbers, there is some thought that uh, passwords in general may have outlived their usefulness. Does that apply in the banking context at all? Or what you've been talking about two-factor authentication where you've put your thumbprint or your uh, face ID and you're paying for something um, that doesn't necessarily apply there. But is there anything to that? Is there any, any evolution at all in uh, AIB's thinking on how you will access your accounts in the future? Like, let's say if you're at a PC terminal, is mm -hmm. it still the same you're going to be asked two or three things. So this is the work we're doing on yeah. strong customer authentication will right. allow us. So, you know, the dreaded um, pin card, the reader, the card reader that people, oh, you know, most people really don't like yeah. this thing. Okay. We're working to get rid of that and strong customer authentication, which you'll see it, you'll see it by the end of September, is a good step forward in that. Okay. Um, so, yeah, we're working on it. it you what would the, that look like? So the idea is it would be a token on your device. Oh. So now we know it's your device. 
ah. rather than it being somebody who's pretending to be on your device. We can we can verify that it is you at your whichever your PC or your phone or whatever. That's right, what and for. subject to the same what an an anonymization technology, etc. Because anytime you mention tokens and mm. unique identifiers, privacy always comes rushing out. So the, the thing back. is, the idea would be that we know the device, mm. we know the device is associated with you, mm. we know the tokens on the device, mm. but the three three things are not all in one place. Mm. So there's no way someone could go get all of your different factors. What about biometrics? So I think biometrics are already there because we when have. you pick up your phone and yeah. you look at it for your camera or mm-hmm. you put your thumbprint, mm-hmm. that's part of the authentication we yep. accept. But otherwise, by uh, facial recognition, for example, it's not controversial with Apple products like the iPhone mm. because they rarely are with the iPhone. But San Francisco, they've banned it from uh, from the police rolling it out um, or other municipal entities. I've just spent a week in China where it's everywhere. Facial recognition now mm-hmm. is absolutely everywhere. Businesses are incorporating it. I've been subject to facial recognition in companies in London. Uh, when I visited a friend of mine working in Bloomberg, instead of signing in or instead of like giving an email or anything, I was actually made to stand in front of a monitor, took my photo, uh, like uh, uh, airport security. And we are told that this is a coming thing. Is AIB or the banking sector thinking of expanding biometrics in any way? So here's the thing. We can do any of that. We mm-hmm. have the capability to do any of it. Right? The, the question is, do customers want it? Is it legal? Mm-hmm. Um, and ultimately, it's about streamlining the experience as much as you can while providing the right level of protection. And mm-hmm. that's the challenge. So we would never go down... Not, I can't say never, but right now I wouldn't want to go below that. Two, some, two factors. There'd want to be two factors. What is a me. possible use case, for example, for facial recognition, other well, than what we use it for with the well, iPhone? Right? I mean, for example, if I walked into a branch and it knew who I was and I yeah. could be greeted by name and the person immediately had all my, you know, could have access to the, the information. If Friendly minority report. Yeah, yeah, yeah. excuse me. So, I mean, all that stuff is doable. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, uh, w- yeah. there's no technology we can't introduce with the, with the team we've got, genuinely. It's just a matter of what's the balance from what a customer wants? How do we stream? So this building we have now in Leperson where we put all the tech people, we actually have a focus group in the building. Or sorry, not a focus group, excuse me, a focus room. So we can bring customers in, you know, the kind of two-way mm-hmm. mirror thing mm-hmm. that marketers use. So customers can come in and they can talk about the product or then we can show them what we're doing. But the people who are actually developing it can hear firsthand. So we're, we're, we're shortening the line all the time to the customer experience. So, so that's our primary... And what's the drift? What's the them. thinking? Do, is, is that a runner? Is that... Facial recognition? Yeah. It, it's very mixed. There is a sense... So you mentioned China, for example. Mm. People talk about China. It's a popular conversation at the moment. It's a social score. Yes. Right? So yes. this is the challenge with something like facial recognition. It could streamline our experience. It would be cool to be able to walk in and have yeah. them know who I am as a customer. Mm-hmm. But how? where does it stop? So I think it's going to take a little while. It's a bit like AI and robotics. There's well, a, you know, people for example, need to live with these things. And at see how at it, Mobile World Congress in Barcelona, which is the big annual telecoms conference every February, uh, instead of a tag or showing a card, you had the option to record your face um, and you just walk in and out. Mm. Probably about half the people did that. I did it just to see how it worked. And it actually worked pretty well, in, in fairness. And it kind of suited... Uh, me, I wasn't forced to do it, so it was an optional thing. But is that something? If it was introduced, is that the way it would be introduced? Or yeah, look, honestly, like I could walk into a Tesco or a 
you know, Dunn mm. stores or other stores are available, mm. right? But you could walk into any of these and to have them know who you are and perhaps, for example, send something to an app that you have on your phone to give you suggestions about deals on products you know or it's like these the, are all doable the Amazon Go store yeah the principle behind that is you walk in there's ostensibly nobody there behind the till you walk in um, there's a, a a sensor that mm. senses your uh, your Amazon account you pick something off the shelf and walk out and your Amazon account is deducted that's the that's the, the dumbed down version of what happens so in theory, a facial recognition system could work the same way for another purpose. Yeah, absolutely. A funny one about that one, on the week that it opened, the journalist went in um, and uh, t- to see what it, how it would work. He tried to nick a can Just, of yeah, Coke. Yeah, I saw that. You see that? You got charged for it. I thought I know, that was pretty yeah. funny. That's how good the system was. But here's the thing. If you take some of the... Uh, so I went into... I, I never eat fast food, but today I was running over here and I had to grab a burger, right? Yeah. I went into a fast food place and they had a self-service. I had to fill in... A, not a great experience. Walked up to the counter. McDonald's is the only place that does that. I, I don't want to name a brand. Okay. But like, it basically... <laughs> oh, I, I'm well familiar with it. <laughs> Poor experience, right? <laughs> you go in, you know when you've got the self-checkouts? Yeah. There's a danger there that you walk in and you do the self-checkout and now it just becomes a purely transactional-based relationship. Yeah. Whereas if I'm walking up to a counter on my Friday evening, I get my weekly shopping, and I say to someone, how are you, John? How's the... Uh, you're not going to tell me no. that you're, you you value the golden moments of the chat with the... the yes. Do you, okay. Yes. Really? I, yes. Absolutely. So, because the thing is that if you, you want, you are one of a minority. <laughs> if you think about the transactional relationship, yeah, then it's it's about the streamlining, the optimization, and potentially it's a race to the bottom from a value cost perspective, right? Because or because you or, commoditize it. I'm just like devil's careful. advocate yeah. here. Or it might save you time and you just walk in and you don't have to go through the the kind of thing. Actually, could I have no ketchup on that? The burger comes out with ketchup. Yeah. I said I wanted to know. Sorry, I'm not. I'm not really Larry David, but you know, you know what yeah, I mean. There, yeah. there is a legitimate reason. So for don't get me wrong. There's plenty of times where I run up and use the self checkout because it suits me. Yeah. Right. But if I've got a basket, if I've got a trolley full of stuff, I'd rather someone else did the work. Right. And in the meantime, there's a, there's a human okay. connection of some kind. I'm thinking from the sellers, from the retailers' perspective. Yeah. If you put yourself in a situation where your only relationship with a, with a, a customer is purely uh, transact digital it becomes mm. a transactional relationship in the customer's mind you lose a brand loyalty opportunity and there's so again think opti channel I want there's times mm. when I want to have that relationship and there's time when I just want super efficient or I want to do it through a screen and not talk to well it. I do remember when I got my first mortgage and I say my first mortgage because I'm now 45 so I've I've been through actually three places as you know we got married and all that kind of stuff but at the time the relationship that I had with the bank manager at the local in the local branch was actually kind of important. And I'm ashamed to say that factors like, you know, your family is situated in the area and is known and the bank manager mm-hmm. is in the local club and all that kind of stuff, that actually kind of came into play. Mm-hmm. I don't think I might be naive, I don't think that comes into his play much these days. Not as much, not at all. So if you think back then So it's all about being able to assess the risk Mm. because it's like anything, risk reward. So Mm. if you're assessing the risk to make a loan and you're going to talk to the underwriters, in the absence of a world where we had lots of data, it was, I know you and I know your father, Mm. I can look you in the eye Mm. and I know you're the kind of family who'll pay back. That was Mm. part of the risk. You're now in a world where we have so much data. Mm. And actually, that's quite important after the crash because a lot of the things, and we use the data to try and protect the customer from overborrowing, Mm. right? So that relationship piece in decision-making is not quite as important. It might be more in the SME space. Where are the ethical decisions in how far to use that data or even to seek that data 
in terms of assessing a customer, whether it's from an actuarial point of view, whether it's from the temptation to try and assume something from a customer's um, uh, habits, what they say they they like doing, all that sort of stuff. I mean, you know, we're big data. We're in this era, and the big fear has always been that financial institutions, insurance companies in particular, uh, will use more and more and more of the data to to, to make those kind of decisions. But from, even from a CIO's perspective, this must be a fascinating conundrum because on the one hand, you've more data, customer data, than ever before floating around. Even stuff that you or I may not have thought of, but somebody has modeled in the States or something and they've come out with this fantastic new product. Is that is that a kind of a battle? It's a huge opportunity. Yeah. So I'm sitting on, in our organization, we're sitting on nearly 10 petabytes of data. Wow, that's yeah. a lot. That's a lot, right? Yeah. And that's in all sorts. We've got phone recordings. We've got, you know, yeah. I mean, we've just got lots of different kinds yeah. of data, right? That presents you with a massive opportunity. Now, the first thing is we think about the data. There's obviously the legislation that we, mm-hmm. you've got around controlling the use of data, and there's a big ethical piece around it because you don't want any unintended consequences. Right. Because you could have a model where you make a judgment on something on data and mm-hmm. you might do it wrong, right? I mean, we all know AI and some of the things because of the sources that were used yep. that they weren't diverse, right? But in this one... If, if, if I go in to, to take a mortgage and I give the bank permission to look at all my stuff, then the bank can use all that data and look at my accounts, look, and then maybe come back and say, we don't think you could pay this loan back. Right. Right? Because mm-hmm. I've given permission to the bank to do that on my behalf. Mm-hmm. Beyond that, we're limited because of the law and in sometimes what we can do for customers uh, in mm-hmm. the EU. So I came across one example. I was with um, IBM in the States. I was looking at some AI stuff. And... Um, they told me a story about a bank in the southern part of the U.S. And one of the things they'd done was very clever. They had assessed customers and say, let's say you f- we both pay our mortgage every month, but you finish the, you finish the month with 500 bucks to spare and I finish it with mm. 100 bucks. And there's a big storm coming. So now they're, they're taking the unstructured data, external unstructured mm. data, in the form of the weather. Yep. And they're saying there's a storm coming. We're next to our neighbors. It's going to hit both our houses. Mm. You'll be able to, we'll be able to absorb it if there's damage. I won't. Mm. So the opportunity is to reach out to me and say to me, hey, we know there's a storm coming and we have your back. Mm. If you have a problem, we'll give you a two-month holiday so you can fix your house, for example. Mm. Now, I'd love to be able to do that for yeah. customers. If you think about some parts of the country that face you know, floods and that sort of thing, and we could think about the... Po- but you're limited by policy. You're limited by the use of the data. You have to think about what turns a loan into a non-performing loan. But there, you know, I think over time, these opportunities, actually, if you take the lifetime, like even from a regulator perspective, I think these things will evolve and we'll get to be able to say how, ultimately, it's about protecting. Yes, we have to protect the financial sector and we have to protect the customer using the data sensibly. There's mm. going to be opportunities coming. Okay, look, at this point, I'm going to ask you about one of the reasons I asked you to come in here in, in the first place, which was about Techies for Temple Street. So um, I think this is AIB's second year as the lead sponsor. Yeah. Is that right? And you've previously raised, is it 14,000 euros? 14,000 last year, yeah. 14, We're for 20 this year. Yeah, for 20,000 this year. And just remind me uh, if, if you have a, a general sense of where this money goes and why it's, it's being uh, raised. Well, we picked Temple Street. I mean, look, I mean, Temple Street is super institution. I think mm. 150,000 patients go through Temple Street yep. every year, right? So mm. what's not to like? Yeah? Mm. Um, they've got such a great reputation. I think most of us, if you go into your extended family, would probably find someone even if we would want My to. My brother, I remember. And right. I remember why. We were playing a game as, as kids 
Um, it was called, was it called Hippo? The kids all have to line up. You grab the the guy in front of he grabs the guy in front of him and then somebody has to no it was horse Trojan horse and somebody has to run take a skip and see how far off the line you could get unfortunately there was a neighbour of ours whose nickname was Ten Ton Terry and <laughs> my younger brother was in the middle of a line and Ten Ton Terry came had a run landed on my brother's back he collapsed into Temple Street for two weeks. Yeah. For two weeks. Cause, and he, he developed a problem called irritable hip uh, after that, which lasted for about a year. But Temple Street were fantastic. Yeah. Know? And so that, and that's it. I mean, the reputation. And mm. so, you know, one of the things we're very keen on as as a technology function, mm. we try and get behind things. And there's a number of things we get behind. Um, and this one, we said, you know, the tech is for Temple Street is a great idea because the technology industry, people tend to have a lot of energy. They tend to mm. have... It's quite a high level of social conscience, so there's a lot of people come together to do the to do the event, uh, and we put a we put a number of teams into it. And like the reports from last year, I was away last year. The reports from last year, are just they had so much fun. I mean, they're a competitive bunch. So, mm. yeah. yeah, I've spoken to a few uh, companies who've taken part in before, and they always uh, get get a good crack out of it. This CSR, uh, which is corporate and corporate social, social responsibility, responsibility mm-hmm. is a growing thing. I've kind of written. Articles before, though, questioning whether it sometimes is used for branding purposes. Mm. I'm no way suggesting this is, but on on other uh, issues. And actually, one that's topical or controversial at the moment is um, we're in Pride Week or Pride Month at the moment. And there are a lot of Pride flags um, around town, certainly around Dublin anyway. But I have noticed there is definitely a a little bit of a pushback against um, corporate adoption of, uh, of Pride for kind of commercial reasons, yeah. there's definitely a pushback. Yeah, exactly. Is, yeah. Do you do you, do you, do you feel? Yeah, I feel pretty good that? about where we're at. Where we're at with it. Um, when we get involved in these kind of things, uh, we don't tend to toot our horn. Mm. We tend to be a bit quiet about it. Okay. And the organisation, because it's all over the country, uh, the people are volunteering all over, giving their time, getting on charity boards, you know, volunteering in the gym. Well, they probably would, any, and they might themselves. But the organisation is very uh, accommodating and making time available for employees to do that. So that's the basis, right? In the tech function, because you know, mm-hmm. if I take on all our partners, we have a couple thousand people working in the tech function mm-hmm. around the world, right? So in, in Dublin, one of the things we use it for is not really for branding. It's actually a way of us getting back together. When I came into the bank, so if you think about what it was like for people in, in banking, and I know everyone has a, has a downer on the bank, but for the average person working in the bank, they didn't cause the problem. And they were very proud to have worked, say, in a bank like AIB. Mm. And then literally within days, if they were on the dart line, they'd be spat at if they forgot to take their badge off. So it was traumatic for them, right? Mm. So when I came in, they were still very low. And one of the things I said as a target was to try and put heart, just put heart back in the organization. Mm. And nothing put heart, puts heart back in an organization like feeling like you're actually making a difference and doing good. And mm. so we got involved in a lot of different things. So for me, it's not about, it's CSR from the point of view of helping, but not a branding. It's mm. actually... It's a way of getting all the people in the organization doing something together that's not about work and it just gives them a Okay, lift. so it's not the case that, for example, there might be a board meeting where somebody suggests, look, I've got um, a good way of, uh, 
you know, moving the needle uh, for us uh, commercially. If we adopt, you know, uh, three or four different causes, and if we go half leather, we you know we'll be seen as being, you know, great and everything, and that will that will kind of improve brand our our brand image. I, honestly, in the four years or so, almost four years I've been in the bank, I've never once heard anything that even sounded like that. Right. Okay. Fair never. enough. Um, and by the way, I should say the tech industry does have those issues as well. Mm. Um, I know at the moment there is a problem within Google where. You normally think of companies like Google and Facebook historically as being companies that will be more progressive on issues uh, like Pride, for example. But um, lately, it seems that the bigger these companies get, the more conservative they become. And I think there is a problem in Google at the moment with uh, uh, with the company not allowing its staff members to protest certain elements of their mm-hmm. Pride uh, thing. So, uh, you know, this is affecting the the uh, tech industry as well. Um, I think we're going to leave it there, Tim. Uh, thanks a million for coming in and talking about stuff. There's lots of other uh, things I could ask you about, I'm sure, but uh, you've been generous with your time. So um, that was Tim Hines, CIO of AIB. And we thank you very much for joining the Big Tech Show. And that's all we have time from me, Adrian Wackley, the tech editor of the Irish and Sunday Independent. I will be here at the same time next week. Until then, bye-bye.